us to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study. If you're a guest with us, we're actually in a series of sermons that are studying John's Gospel. We're entering into the second chapter of that Gospel today, but I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 19, in just a few moments, even though we're going to focus our attention on chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, his mother said to his servants. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it come from, had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask now, Father, that you would help us to see that path clearly as it has been decisively revealed in your word in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask during this time you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see if we are Christians, that we might be driven into deeper faith and deeper repentance. And Father, if anyone here is not a Christian, Would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the Son of God, the face of the Son of God in the person of Christ, that they might be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. In his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis says, if we open such books as Grimm's Fairy Tales or Ovid's Metamorphoses, or the Italian epics, we find ourselves in a world of miracles so diverse that they can hardly be classified. Beasts turn into men, and men into beasts or trees. Trees talk, ships become goddesses, and a magic ring can cause tables richly spread with food to appear in a solitary place. Some people cannot stand this kind of stories. Others find it fun, but the least suspicion that it was true would turn all of the fun into a nightmare. If such things really happened, they would, I suppose, show that nature was being invaded, but they would show that she was being invaded by an alien power. The fitness of Christian miracles, according to Lewis, and their differences from these mythological miracles, lies in the fact that they show invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what might be expected to happen when she is invaded not simply by a God, but by the God of nature, by a power which is outside her jurisdiction, not as a foreigner, but as a sovereign, they proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, her king, and ours. As we transition to chapter 2 of John's gospel, John is trying to show us that the king, our king, has come. By showing us 
chapter 1, verse 50, the greater things that Jesus promised have come when he tells us that the lamb who takes away the sins of the world is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. Three simple points will frame the outline of our time together today, and they all begin with W. Wedding, woman, wine. Notice first, a wedding. Verse 1. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The place was Cana in Galilee. The occasion in John's gospel was a wedding. And as they are for us, weddings were monumental moments in the life of first century Jewish people. They were always festive occasions lasting well over a week. But the text does not tell us all of the things that we would want to know about the passage. It doesn't tell us who is getting married. It doesn't tell us much about how they looked when they arrived that day. Though we assume it's somebody related in some way, either by blood or relationship to Mary, verse 1, the mother of Jesus, as John, like any good narrator, begins to give us other details that paint a different type of verbal picture for us in our minds. He tells us on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, provoking us as readers to ask, what is the third day and why is it significant for John? Nowhere else we have seen in John's gospel does he spell out the days between events as he does here at the beginning of his gospel. And as we've seen the last few weeks, the question is not, how does John spell out these days, but why does John spell out these days? John is so concerned with spelling out the days between events at the beginning of his gospel because John is trying to point our attention to the first full week of Jesus' public ministry. As this running sequence of days that began in John 1.19 climaxes now in the miraculous transformation of water turning into wine in John chapter 2, verse 9, on the seventh day, on the new week pointing us to the new creation that Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Rabbi, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Expected One, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the King of Israel, Jesus, the Son of Man, brings. John goes to great and extravagant lengths to recount all of these days for us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because he wants to draw our attention to the fulfillment of Jesus' words in chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus had told Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. And now just a few days later, Jesus made that awesome statement. His words come to pass at a wedding in Cana in Galilee when water becomes wine on the first day of a new week, signifying something altogether new in his ministry, something that the prophets who spoke to the people of Israel in exile had actually held out to them in a vision, the vision that described a day in the future when God would bring his people back from captivity and restore them to the land that he had given to their forefathers, And on that day, they would be gathered together. And on that day, God would be dwelling with his people. And on that day, they would live in joyful obedience to God in a land filled with peace and plenty and prosperity and happiness. And one of the marks of that day would be the new wine dripping from the mountains and flowing from the hills. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Amos chapter 9. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that should be page 771. Amos chapter 9, page 771 of one of the Pew Bibles. 
It's important for us to tell you that the prophets prophesied about these things, but it's also important for you to see that the prophets prophesied about these things. Amos 9, verse 13, the prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. At the beginning of his gospel, John is going to extravagant lengths. He wants us to pay attention to who this Jesus is. At this point, at the end of the first century, people would have heard stories of Jesus. People would have had all types of different ideas about who Jesus is and what he had come to do. In fact, people would have been saying different things about Jesus and writing false gospels about this Jesus and what he was doing. And John didn't want there to be any confusion. So at the beginning of his gospel, he says, this Jesus who has all of these unique names and fulfills all of these expectations is the one who's bringing the end of all of the sadness and bringing something altogether new. John goes to extravagant lengths because he wants us to see that the water become wine at Cana in Galilee gives us actually a glimpse of an arrival, a glimpse of an arrival that comes in the person of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. So on the third day, the first day of a new week, a new creation, we find Jesus at a wedding, a beautiful setting for him to begin his public ministry, a place that marks out him as very different from first century monastic asceticism of what people typically identify him with and accuse him of, a celebration that Jesus and his mother and his disciples were all invited to, the same disciples, verse 2, already mentioned in chapter 1, Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and an unnamed disciple. It was a time of celebration at Cana, but John makes us aware of a dreadful embarrassment, a wedding, notice second, a woman. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There were certain social expectations as there are in our culture and in our time period, protocols expected by the people who had come to the party, expected by the Jews who hosted a wedding. They expected them to supply food and to supply drink in its aftermath. So verse 3, when it says, the wine ran out, the reality was all but unthinkable. Think of your wedding if you're married here. Or think of any wedding that you've ever gone to, and you show up, and they've invited you to the reception, and then you get there, and there is nothing. It would have broken all types of codes. It was far more than a social embarrassment. People had family obligations to provide for their guests. Some documents even suggest that you could be fined and arrested for running out of wine. So now, perhaps, here, you've come and you hear this 
speech about wine, and you've heard preachers say things about this text where they say that the wine here is not really wine. They speak about the wine as if it's something more like mouthwash that you use every morning, and I hope you use mouthwash every morning. But I assure you that that is not what John is telling us. Not only is the idea unbelievably silly to us, but it's unbelievably ridiculous in a culture where agricultural tradition is so committed to the cultivation of grapes. So it's clear that the master of the feast also expected it to be something a lot different than your mouthwash. That's the whole point of the guests having too much to drink in verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. The idea is not about consuming too much liquid. The idea is about inebriation. The wine was needed was not simply grape juice, a generic fruit of the vine. The wine that was needed was the fruit of the vine that had been fermented for consumption by people attending a wedding feast. It was a celebration. It was to bring them pleasure. They were to partake of the wine. Everybody was to partake of the wine. And if the wine ran out before the feast concluded, there was a problem. There was no mere faux pas in the first century. What was supposed to celebrate a new beginning in the creation of a new Jewish home was turning out in John 2 to be something that signified incompetence, disruption, at a very public ceremony. When the wine ran out, the situation grew dire. Everyone would have known what was taking place. And just like everybody here, what do you do when you see all of this happening? They would have begun to talk. Everybody would have been extremely embarrassed. It would have bordered the unthinkable for the family hosting the event. So taking matters into her own hands, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had learned to trust in his resourcefulness, approached him about the situation. John writes in verse 3, The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Her complaint signifies that she has some role at the wedding. But the question is, what did she expect Jesus to do when she voiced the complaint? Why does she go to Jesus about the predicament? Jesus is present. The newness of the circumstance is obviously public. Everyone knew what was happening, including Jesus. So Mary's statement to Jesus was not one of information, but one of petition. They have no wine. The type of circumstance that we're all familiar with. When disappointment takes place that causes us stress or tragedy, whether it's something as small as a broken toy for a child or a broken relationship for an adult, To state the obvious to the people around us is not to inform them of the obvious, but is to ask for their help. And the response of Jesus shows that this was exactly the case. Jesus says to his mother, verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Mary's statement to Jesus brings a question. A response that at first glance for careful Bible readers seems to be abrupt and harsh and demeaning. This isn't the Jesus that we think about when we come to the Bible. But it appears abrupt and harsh and demeaning because we don't know very much about our Bibles. Woman should not be read in a derogatory manner in John's Gospel because Jesus uses the same word when speaking to his mother from the cross. John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby... He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus used actually the same word when speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus used the same word when he spoke to Mary Magdalene in the garden. John chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
Woman should not be read in a derogatory manner in John's gospel because in John's gospel, Mary is never called by name. She's referred to as Jesus' mother. Careful readers noticed it as we looked at the first five verses. Just underline how many times you see it. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus' question, woman, what does this have to do with me? Suggests not only a change that's about to take place with the water become wine, but he's communicating a change in his relationship with his mother. Something has taken place. We're now at the beginning of his public ministry as he journeys towards the cross. Their relationship is different. Jesus then goes on to answer his own question. And it's so kind of Jesus to answer questions. When we have questions about what's taking place, very important questions. Jesus does not answer every question from his family or his followers, but some of the most important questions he answers gladly. And this is one of those questions. But the answer Jesus gives doesn't satisfy curiosity again. It doesn't tell us what he's about to do. It explains who he is and what he has come to do. He says, verse 4, My hour has not yet come. Mary is talking about wine, and Jesus begins to talk to her about what time it is. What is Jesus doing? The phrase, my hour, in John's gospel is crucial for our understanding of the gospel because from the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus is focused on his hour. Even here at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is focused on the goal. This is why the phrase about his hour is found multiple times throughout John's gospel. John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. John seven thirty. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Like any good storyteller, from the very beginning, John begins to build suspense. The type of story that if it had music, we would hear something every time Jesus is mentioning his hour. He's building suspense as he drives us toward the end because John knows from the beginning what's at the end of the story. And each time he mentions that the hour has not yet arrived, all of us as readers should begin to think, what is the hour and when will it come? John builds the suspense 
so that we do not see the cross as a sad accident to an otherwise promising life full of potential. From the very beginning, John wants us to see that Jesus was moving forward purposefully and deliberately towards his time of destiny. Even now, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is very conscious of the coming cross. Jesus' hour arrives at the time of his passion, what we call that final week of Jesus' life. The hour is none other than that hour and that moment when he creates for us on the cross atonement that is real and actualized for us, when he accomplishes for us our redemption by substitutionary sin-bearing death on the cross. God's purpose is worked out in Jesus' death on the cross when that hour finally arrives. Because it's in that hour when the end of all animal sacrifices, which could never make the worshiper perfect, would change. When the cross and the atonement made by Jesus for his people took place in his hour on earth. Friends, Jesus knew exactly what he was about from the very beginning of his ministry. And friends who are here, college students in particular, when you sit in classes like I did in a normal religion department and they tell you Jesus didn't understand who he was or what people would say about him, one of the things you can do is just point back to this text and show them that Jesus knew from the very beginning that his hour had not yet come that he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly where he was going, that he was heading deliberately toward the cross to display the radiance of God's glory. Mary's response to Jesus is interesting. She replies, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. She obviously doesn't interpret Jesus' response the way that we do in the 21st century as an insult. Rather, she's satisfied that Jesus will do something to help her desperate situation. She simply turns to the panicked servants and says, do whatever he says, revealing her confidence in Jesus and offering all believers good advice to follow. But it's amazing, isn't it? In verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, presuming upon their relationship. And in verse 4, Jesus communicates that something has now changed in their relationship as he journeys towards the cross, as he awaits his hour. And now in verse 5, Mary responds as a believer should, and her faith is honored. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she has committed the matter to Jesus, and she trusts Jesus. Mary knew that Jesus would know what to do, and how to do it, and when to do it. Brothers and sisters, I wonder when you look at Mary's faith, do you respond to him in the same way that she did? Or are you trying to hedge your bets with your performance and all of your effort. Your child will not become a Christian because you worked hard enough, and you will not overcome your addiction because you abstained from it long enough. You will not mature faster because you read fast enough. Like Mary, in every circumstance in your life, you must commit the matter to Jesus, and you must trust Jesus that he knows exactly what to do, and he knows exactly when to do it, and he knows exactly how to do it, Well, friend, are you here and you're just trying to take everything into your hands? You're trying to control every situation and everyone around you, and you're frustrated when it doesn't work out the way that you intend. Mary here displays the faith of a disciple, not trying to control, but relinquishing control. Do whatever he tells you. We're not talking about an ordinary man in John's gospel, and we're not simply overhearing a sweet conversation between a mother and her son. We're hearing the conversation of a mother who learned that something was different. Friend, I wonder if you've learned that same thing in your life. 
that there's something different when you follow Jesus. You're not in charge. You're not in control. You can presume upon the relationship, but you are a follower, and a follower follows. Mary recognizes it. Jesus is pointing to it. John is explicitly stating it. And John 2, verses 3 through 5, ensures that the focus is on nothing other than Jesus' glory, the coming hour of his exaltation. Not Mary's petition, not Jesus' disciples, but Jesus' glory, because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. A wedding, a woman, notice third, the wine. Look in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The Bible tells us that there were six stone water jars there at the present time. The number six connotes nothing special of theological significance. It just means in God's providence that there were six stone water jars there at present. The emphasis is on the jars, not the number. The jars were made of stone because stone was more impervious and less likely to have contaminated water. This made the stone jars especially suitable for what the text tells us that they were used for, ceremonial washing. And John tells us that these jars were very large, each of them, verse 6, holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. Now, I don't know how many weddings you've been to or how much you know about bars at weddings, but I can assure you that 180 gallons of water would have done nobody any good for the bar at this wedding at this particular time. In fact, this water wasn't even for normal consumption. It was consecrated water for Jewish rites of purification, So in the context of a wedding feast, the water from these jars would have been used for washing utensils and guests' hands. But it is the purpose of the jars that provides the clue as to how we're to interpret the story that John is recounting for us. The water represents the old order of Jewish laws and customs and ceremonial washing, which Jesus is about to replace in these jars with something altogether new, with something entirely different, with something better. Because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. The fact that they had run out of wine and have only the water for ritual purification indicates the bankruptcy of everything that they had been banking their hopes on, Judaism. In contrast to the abundant supply of the messianic age that Jesus is now ushering in in John's gospel. So verse 7 says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus commands them to fill the jars with water and take it to the master of the feast. And we can just imagine in this moment how absurd his command seems. Why would Jesus tell them to take water? It would be strange and absurd for someone to fill stone water jars reserved for religious purposes and then in the response to a crisis of no wine. What good would that do to help anybody now? What is Jesus thinking? But the scripture tells us in verse 7 that the servants obeyed 
filling the water pots to the brim, having no idea what they're doing, but doing it because Jesus tells them to. And in obedience to Jesus, they did exactly as they were told. Then after the water was in the jars, Jesus gave them another directive, verse eight. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now I want you to try again to imagine the scene. They have no wine. Everybody at the room knows it. Everybody's talking about it, just like you would be talking about it to everybody at your table. No one understands why they're out of wine, and no one knows how they're going to get more wine, and everybody thinks that the bridegroom's embarrassed, and everybody is wondering what's going to happen. And in the midst of all of these circumstances, Jesus tells his disciples to take water out of ritual pots and hand it to the person presiding over the feast. And the master of the feast would have been absolutely stunned to think, what is this and why would it be helpful? The person in the greatest crisis is not only him, but the bridegroom. And there's a gravity of the moment weighs on everybody. And then after tasting it, he calls him over and he says, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. John tells us the master of the feast is stunned. He was stunned because it was the common practice at a banquet to serve the best first and the worst, uh, the, uh, the, worst uh, the best first and the worst second when people's taste buds were less discriminating to serve the cheaper wine later. But the exact opposite takes place here as the family had saved the best until now. Friends, what he tasted in that glass was not water but wine. He had no idea where it came from, but John tells us the servants knew. Now notice the progression of thought for John. They went from a crisis to water pots to the sparkling wine of the kingdom of God. And notice how Jesus performs this. He's not described as touching the water jars. He's not described as commanding the water to become wine. He's not described as praying for the water to change into wine. He simply wills for the transformation to take place. And it takes place. Can you imagine the joy of having the burden lifted from your shoulders if you're the bridegroom? The master of the feast is delighted. The guests are blessing and praising him. And in joyful provision of all that was granted to them, we see a truth stated here about Jesus and what he's bringing through these Jewish customs as he brings them to an end, this Jewish ceremony as he brings them to an end. When he says this in verse 10, as John interprets what is taking place, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Friends, it never happened that things got better and better and better. And what John is telling us is something has changed as the sheer quantity and the greatness of it overwhelms the people. The Jewish sacrificial system with all of its accompanying festivals, all of its offerings, all of its holy days is passing away because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. John brings this account to a close by noticing something for us in verse 11. This was the first of Jesus' signs, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The servant saw the sign, but not the glory. The disciples by faith perceived Jesus' glory in the sign and John says they believed in him. Referring to this passage, D.A. Carson says this, that this is no mere miracle because... Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. 
By this first sign, Jesus revealed his glory. Jesus' actions are never trivial. They're never without meaning. And that's especially true in John's gospel. As this first sign indicated that the old covenant is passing away. And the new covenant is being established in its place. And here at Cana in Galilee, the manifestation of the glory of the Son of God came to the servants of God, who is in obedience to his command. And the words of Jesus caught a glimpse of what Jesus would do when his hour finally came. Now, friends, we get to the end of all of this, and we might miss the significance of what John is trying to do for us and how he wants us to receive a blessing from this as followers of Jesus. But my friends, John 2 is clearly linked, as we've been teaching ourselves with that summary statement. If you have your Bible, keep your finger open in John 2, and now turn to John 20. We get lost in the weeds of the details, but what we should be asking ourselves is, why did Jesus turn water into wine, and how does that serve John's purpose? It wasn't because Jesus was the life of the party. John says later in his gospel, John 20, why Jesus does all of these things. He told us in chapter 2 it's a sign. Now he tells us in John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what was the response of the disciples in John chapter 2? As we saw them respond to what took place when Jesus did this miracle. Their response after he turned the water into wine was chapter 2 verse 11. His disciples believed in him because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. And this is a sign of the coming new world that fulfills and replaces the old. The bridegroom Jesus has come. The wedding feast of the new creation has begun. And Jesus wants all of his people to believe that he is the son of God, that the messianic age has come, that what he is doing is something altogether new. No more ritual, no more law, no more salvation by obedience, but salvation by faith. No more empty vessels, but overflowing vessels. No more mere water, but wonderful wine. Jesus is telling the people to believe because everything that they have longed for has come in him. Something greater, something surpassing anything that they could have ever hoped for. Their life is empty and he will make it full. They have bottomed out and he will pour out his blessings richly upon him, upon them. He changes water to wine to let them know that all of their expectations, all of their dreams, all of their hopes are coming to fulfillment in Christ, just as we sang earlier, he finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. The writer of the book of Hebrews understood this well when he wrote in Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have needed to cease to be offered since the worshipers would have been cleansed. They would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, in the same way that it was impossible for water to become wine, Apart from Jesus, 
in this crucial circumstance, circumstance without the power of God being manifested in the Son of God? Friends, it is impossible for you to cleanse your dead heart and make yourself live apart from the power of God. It is impossible for you to remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh. John is signaling something altogether new. You will die, but you can live. You will be punished, but you don't have to be. That there is life and it is abundant in Christ. And if you desire his presence, it will not be because of good efforts. It will not be because of anything that you've been able to do to please him. It will not be because you've been able to placate him or satisfy him with religious ritual. It will be because you have believed in the Son of God. It will be because you obey and understand that the old covenant and the Jewish law and all of its regulations are obsolete and have ceased and that the new covenant of God's grace in Christ, as our brother Daniel testified, has come. And if you believe in this Christ, like Daniel and all of the other Christians in this room, you too can be born again and be a Christian today. The sign here at the beginning of John's gospel was revolutionary for the servants of Jesus because they were the first ones to see and to understand that the old is passing away and something new is beginning. Something that brought great delight had arrived. Something that removed a great burden that could not be endured was solved and it was all because the bridegroom, Jesus, had come. And he not only put a new cup of wine into their hand, but later he would switch out that empty cup filled with God's wrath and the cup of God's fury, and he would drain it to the dregs. Later, if we go and we read the Gospels, we'll see Jesus referring to the cup. And if we go and read the Gospels and we see that reference, if you have cross-references in your Bible and you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see many references to the cup of the fury of God's wrath. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. As he puts a cup of life and wine and joy and peace into the hands of those who follow him, he takes the cup of God's wrath and fury and anger out of their hands. And as he switches those cups, he drains it to the dreg and a cup that the prophet Jeremiah tells us was filled with God's wrath, a cup that Jesus drank so that you wouldn't have to experience the fury of God's wrath, all of God's wrath against all of your sins, sins that you've hid and that you think are private, sins that are public and other people know about, sins that have disrupted your life, and sins that just frustrate you mentally, sins that have estranged you from family and friends, and sins that you are hiding now and disrupt your relationship with God. All of the sins that you've committed in your life, Jesus drank the judgment for all of them. He bore the weight for all of them so that you would not have to experience the fury, the rage, the anger of God's just wrath against all of your sins so that you might know problem solved, peace, life, joy, abundance, hope, goodness forevermore. Friends, this was no mere miracle. John tells us in John 2 and John 20, it is a sign. It is a sign of something altogether new. A sign of a salvation that is being brought by a great Savior. And we are forced to answer a question. Will you believe the sign? Will you believe in the salvation that the Savior offers? Will you trust in the Savior 
who gives something greater and better than all of the other false prophets on planet earth. Friend, you can do that today here in this service. You can repent of your sins. When we say repent of your sins, we mean repent by turning away from them, walk away from them, and believe. And when we say believe, we mean trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says if you repent, walk away, and believe, trust in Jesus, you can be saved. Friend, what prevents you from believing in this great Savior? Is it the pride that you have in thinking that other people here already believe that you're a Christian? Friend, is it the pride that you have in thinking that Jesus would not forgive your sins because they're somehow uniquely bad? Is it somehow a despair thinking that Jesus would not receive you? Friends, all of those are lies from the devil. Is it because you feel that you're too old? Or is it because you believe that you might be too young? All of those are lies from the devil. You can trust in Christ today. You can be born again by the Spirit of God today. He drank the poison cup so that you don't have to. And parents here, as you think of the poison cup, we have a great resource for you at the Connection Center. I have my copy down there, but we have one out there for you that's through the tunnel to the left. There's a book written by R.C. Sproul called The Poison Cup, where he just lays out very simply the same type of gospel message that I'm speaking to you about. The salvation that Jesus brings saves you. And friends, it creates the church that we sang about earlier in this service, Christ's bride, a bride that we are to be members of. Friends, if you're not a member of an evangelical church or this local church, we invite you to come and to inquire and ask us, how do I participate in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ? We regularly have membership classes to teach you what we mean by membership, but we're here to tell you that whether you join our church or another church, you have a moral obligation to join a church and be a part, a participating family member of the body of Christ. You must join a church. It's God's people that you identify with when you identify with Jesus Christ, God incarnate. It is a bride that we are to serve, members of our church in particular. Are you serving the bride that Jesus loves? He loved to serve his bride, and he leaves us to serve them. Is it because you feel that you're too busy? Everybody in this church feels that they're too busy. Is it because you feel that you have nothing else to give? Everybody in this church feels that they have nothing else to give. Is it because you feel that what you have to give is meaningless and insignificant? Almost everybody in this church feels the exact same way about their gifts. But you, member, are a meaningful contributor to the body of Christ with much or with little. And you are to serve, to serve Christ's body so that his people would flourish. And they flourish by you serving faithfully. It is a bride that we are to support. Members of this church again, do you give regularly and charitably of what God has entrusted to you? You have covenanted to give to this bride. If you're not a member, we're so glad you're here. And if you gave, thank you. But for our members in particular, this is not only an act of worship, it is an obligation upon you to give to support the local church. Why are you embezzling God's money to keep it for yourself? A bride that we must pray for. You say that you love the church. Do you pray for her regularly and all of the members that are members of this local church with you? Those directories are not because we don't know what to do with Melissa's time and ask her to fill them up with pictures of you all. Those are directories so that you might be helped to pray for God's people as you consider what's going on in their lives. And you can write in those directories and write down the prayer requests. It is a bride 
that we are to invite people into. Our pastor Tim mentioned it earlier, but we are to evangelize people and tell them about this great Savior, the good news that salvation has come, and it is greater and more full and more wonderful. Friends, joyful Christians share the joyful gospel of what God has joyfully done for them in Christ and invite people, call people, plead with people, beg people to come to Christ. We don't want to be beggars, but we should be begging people to come to Christ, trust in Christ, hope in Christ. Why? Because there is a very real hell that they will face. But they can know this Savior, this bridegroom who brings joy. It is a bride that we are to identify with and regularly worship with. Once again, members of this church, do you prioritize other things over the regular assembly of God's people? There's lots of great things that you can do with your time. I'm sure you're missing a lot of them right now. But gathering on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and gathering with God's people to study God's word is never a waste of our time. It is a bride that we are to delight in because God delights in his bride because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy to his wedding guests. And if you're a believer, you are one of those guests that he is invited to be there on that day when he culminates all of those promises. And on those, that day, though there might be weeping in this life, there will be rejoicing beyond anything you've ever experienced forever and ever and ever. Endless joy. A mind, C.S. Lewis said, which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind which actually is relapsing in the process of Christianity into something that he called mere religion. We want a Christianity that we can control, Christianity that we can easily interpret. We want a Christianity that makes sense to us, not a Christianity with mystery. A mind, though, I might add, which asks for a mere miracle, is a mind that wants impressive shows of might and displays of greatness, but does not want a savior. But as Lewis reminded us, the fitness of the Christian miracle lies in the fact that they show invasion. Jesus has invaded planet Earth by a power which is not alien. This is his planet. That we might be expect what we uh, that what might we expect to happen would actually happen when it is invaded, not simply by a god, but by the god of nature, the sovereign, the rightful ruler. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but he is the king, her king and ours. Is he yours? Is Jesus your king? Because friends, I can assure you, he is the king, the bridegroom who brings joy to his guests. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to delight with great joy and the salvation that Jesus our Lord brings. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear afresh the beauty of the gospel. Father, we pray that we would not look for mere miracles, but signs that testify to the greatness of the majesty and the glory and greatness of the Son of God who lived and died for us, who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross 
who was buried and raised for us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?